0: listening to The Portable Foodie. My name is Paris. I live in Devon in the UK with my husband of many years. I'm not a chef, or even a particularly good cook, but food and eating is my passion. Who are your influences? Led Zeppelin. Chanel O'Connor. Uh, Barry Manilow. Joan Bias. Uh, Johnny Mitchell. Uh... Wings. It's a fair question. What are your influences? As a child, I was no more fixated on gastronomy than any other vaguely broken teenager with very little else to do in the school holidays would be. Food was food. Green food, brown food, soft food, hard food, sweet, salt, savoury and occasionally bitter, and always with potatoes. Food came in two types. The kind I had to eat and the kind I wanted to eat. The kinds that came in brightly coloured packets, and the kind I had to dig up outside or pick in the polytunnel. I was a fairly unusual, oddball kid, the sort who counted a K-Tel compilation tape of thoroughly murdered classical music among my most treasured possessions. But no, though I was surrounded by more of the very finest fresh meat and vegetables than most people, it just passed me by until one winter's afternoon after school, because that's when Keith came along. Living as I did, genuinely out in the fucking sticks, entertainment options for an angst teen were severely limited during school holidays. Other than a daily commitment to washing with biactile acne scrub, a process akin to applying a blowtorch to my pockmarked face, my only outlets were a much-loved BMX, a faithful but clinically depressed and extravagantly indolent dog, and a murky dark lake, which remained thoroughly unregarded and devoid of all the usual mysterious stories and legends normally attached to lakes in this part of Ireland. We did have TV, though just the one in those days. Mum would take time after her housework and prep for the evening meal to watch cookery programmes on RTE1, there being absolutely nothing else to watch, as RTE2, our one and only other channel, didn't get going until about 3pm. RTV was a long way from the FST, NICAM stereo, widescreen, fast-track, digital doodars watched by the rest of the MTV generation. Ours was an elderly and cantankerous affair, from the days when wooden veneer and haptics of the crunch-clunk variety were a guarantee of quality. It squatted on a chrome stand in the corner of the room, and required much cajoling and careful operation for it to give of its best. In its final years, it was even a requirement to walk carefully around it, using kindly words once approached. However, I digress. It was the mid-80s, and the first real dawn of cookery programmes, at least in this part of Ireland, devoted solely to cookery. The dish would be quickly described accompanied by an ancient library photo, and then expertly manicured hands pointed in close-up at ready-prepared ingredients, all neatly proportioned into individual glass bowls. A look of panic in their eyes as they hurried against the clock and an impatient floor manager, hell-bent on sacrificing the bloody cookery slot to keep the programme on time. Ingredients were sloshed and dunked, first into one bowl and then another, accompanied by vague explanations before almost throwing it at the oven. The actual cooking process was entirely absent, as if somehow indecent on daytime TV. Without warning, the presenter would deftly sweep the bowl out of shot, under the table, or to an unseen hand during a close-up, casually suggesting in an offhand manner a possible method of cooking it. The pained look crawling slowly across their face, suggesting that they didn't much care. Then, accompanied by the famous words, here's one we made earlier, a magnificent specimen bearing no resemblance whatsoever to the mess now residing in the other oven would be flourished into view. Cue relieved expression and pan away to the next segment on geriatric incontinence. But all that changed when Yan came along. Yan was Ireland's answer to the BBC's mighty Ken Hom, who was taking over the world one walk at a time. Yan can Cook ran for seemingly a million shows. Presented by a diminutive but expensively tanned East Coast Asian chef, with an orthodontist on a retainer and a sunbed on permanent standby, Yan would cook in an intensely brightly lit studio set, in front of a highly appreciative audience, of the sort that enjoyed the coach journey in almost as much as his cooking. Jan's big number wasn't really cooking. It was chopping vegetables at breakneck speed. Wielding an almost comically large cleaver, he would rattle away, his whole body almost a blur, apart from his head, which appeared entirely unaware of what his hands were up to, and continued to gaze around the room lovingly. Once everything that could feasibly benefit from a damn good slicing was thoroughly decimated, the cooking could then begin. As with most Chinese cooking, the work was in the preparation, and Yan saw no reason to change this. Once again wielding his mighty cleaver to gather the vast pile of shrapnel into a hot wok, he would, after a couple of minutes, create a thick, shiny sauce, consisting, well, almost entirely of soy, that and a pinch of MSG he tried to pass off as seasoning. My mother liked and hated him in equal measure, but continued to watch him avidly nonetheless. I would sometimes join Mum in watching this programme after school, if only for the combined entertainment of Jan and my mother regularly duking it out. This being the 80s, there was no getting away from Delia, of course. The frustrated bob, pearl necklace, comfortable shoes, and clothing from Marks and Sparks, conservative, yet cheerful and timeless range. Delia ruled with a non-stick iron fist, and Mum and I hated her on sight. We scorned not just her matronly ways, but her complete lack of passion, as if cooking was simply a matter of instruction and construction, anything else being mere frippery, and quite possibly the start of a slippery slope. Just uttering the words, use butter or margarine, would have my mum pointing fingers at the TV, telling her, you're no good, you soulless old bat. I had to agree even if only to stave off a lecture on what margarine could do to any number of dishes. I have to admit feeling the same way myself when, only a few years ago, Delia Smith recommended the use of instant mash powder in one of her cheat dishes. For those short on time or money, I can't remember which, and it may possibly have been both. It's possibly the only time in my life that I've contemplated petrol bombing a pensioner. Delia didn't want to inspire or educate, she wanted you to cook her damn recipes and not question it. As an example, here's Delia. So we're going to make an all-in-one sponge now just to show you how easy it is. First of all, nice big roomy bowl because you want to get air in. And then four ounces of self-raising flour sifted into the bowl, holding the sieve up nice and high again so that you can get plenty of air into the flour as it goes down into the bowl. Four ounces of soft margarine, and this is what makes it possible to do it all in one. This soft tub type of margarine. Then I've got four ounces of caster sugar, and for sponges, and for most cakes, you need a fine texture, so do always use caster sugar. Then two eggs, plonk, in they go. See how easy it is. And now a little bit of vanilla essence. You can, of course, use other flavourings. And now... Here's Jamie. Okay, we're going to do a beautiful sponge, great for birthday cakes, great for tea cakes. Kids will go mad for it, adults will go mad for it. I love this recipe because it's so simple to remember. 250 grams of butter, unsalted. 250 grams of self-raising flour, straight in a food processor. And then 250 grams of sugar. And then to make it perfect as a sort of sponge, we're going to use four eggs. So, whack that. Three hours ago, these eggs were up the farm of my chickens. And if you want to, get yourself just a little bit of orange and just a few little bits of orange in there. One terrifies you, the other is urging you on to give it a go and maybe take it your own way. But then came Keith. The auntie delia I remember this moment exactly. It was still somehow winter, and I was crammed into the kitchen, along with most of our sitting room furniture, including the now much traumatised television, whilst my father undertook an epic restoration project. I had to watch the TV from a distance of about a foot away, in order for my mum to be able to cook dinner and also keep one eye on the TV. Jan had by now long since departed, Our favourite was now an American import, starring two gentleman friends of crisp and dry appearance and flamboyant nature, parading ingredients and utensils, Liberace-style, arms akimbo. Their big hook was reducing calories without reducing flavour, but as nobody ever got to taste their food, you had only their word to take for it. Then, entirely unannounced, Keith burst into their slot, dinner ground to a halt, and we both instantly became devotees. Keith wasn't a great cook, and his presentation often amounted to no more than sliding something out of a pan and onto a platter. But let there be no mistake, Keith rocked. For Mum and me, he was the Keith Richards of the kitchen. He spat recipes like Oliver Reed rehearsed and busted these lines like Dave Allen. He had more passion and savoir faire and style than anyone I knew on TV. Ingredients didn't just matter. They were sacred, but at the same time, they were there to be used. If he said use brandy, he meant brandy, not whiskey. If you were brandyless, Delia would have discouraged such wanton spending and suggested the use of sherry as a sensible substitute. Not Keith. He'd have told you to bloody well cook a recipe for which you did have the right ingredients. If Keith said sunflower or olive oil, then either would genuinely do. Either way, Keith would leave you in no doubt as to which one he favoured. Cooking was as much about the history of the dish as to the location where it was prepared, the manner in which it was done. One could not be without the other. And each series wasn't just a series of dishes cooked against a backdrop. It was an adventure. Everyone from the cameraman to the producer and the vegetable seller became part of each dish. We watched every episode in silent adoration, as the day turned to evening. Somehow, after the fireplace was completed, and we moved back into the sitting room once more, it was not quite the same as that first series we watched. Keith was still king, swashbuckling his way across the world, but somehow being crammed into the kitchen felt like being along for the ride, stuffed into the back of whatever odd vehicle he'd moan about having to use for the series, along with his famously appalling stove, buckled table, and vast copper sauté pan that both Mum and I coveted shamelessly. Two years ago, my husband Carl bought me a complete, save for the mysterious missing French series, box set of Keith Floyd. Despite the 25 years and the tiny BBC regional TV budget, it still held its own. The scratch film, swirling audio and lack of equipment somehow giving the whole production an, a now epic frontiersman feeling. Keith's cookery now seemed a little amateurish. Perhaps this is because it is now currently de rigueur to be that much more savvy about things. If that's the case, then we owe more than a nod of thanks in Keith's direction. Either way, Keith stood the test of time and still rocked it like a pro. Keith died that year. In the same way most people my age remember where they watch Live Aid, For me, that was the sitting room again. Or where they were when Thatcher resigned, holding a tin of varnish in a paint shop. I remember most vividly exactly where I was when I heard Keith Floyd had gone. I was midway between East Budley and Budley-Salterton, returning from a visit to my granny during her last few days. A message from Tom flashed onto my phone. It said simply, "'Keith's dead.'" Tom and I had been talking all things Keith the day before, as a much-hyped warts-and-all documentary was due to screen that evening. I was going out for a night on the tiles, so I had recorded it to watch later. As I put on my dancing shoes and shared a pre-night-out drink with Carl, a short drive away, Keith Floyd quietly crumpled in his chair and died. Tom, who had already seen the documentary that night, texted me furiously, Don't watch it. You know how they say you should never meet your heroes. It's a bit like that. So do not watch. Ring me now. Next, mum rang. Have you heard? Keith's died. And so we talked over our favourite bits. The rude Frenchwoman, The seasick cameraman. The mud crab failure. And the dangerous emu. I watched the documentary, of course, as soon as I got home. Tom was right, it was terrible. Keith, now all but gone. At least those parts we adored. Left behind was a sad, shambolic and embittered shell. Eyes that still twinkled, but now only out of habit, and never at anybody in particular. He blundered and shouted, railed and whined, against those that had screwed him over. And saddest of all, also at those that had held him together with love and care beyond his understanding. He staggered and limped, fell asleep mid-interview, was painfully and willfully rude. However much I reminded myself of the better parts of his character, it was still an immense struggle to balance the good memories with what I now knew. And to top it all off, the King was now dead. After Keith, Mum and I rarely sat together to view afternoon cookery programmes again. Though, just once, a TV series called The Spice of Life captured us both. Each week would feature an exotic spice from some remote end of the earth. I vowed one day that I'd go to a country where I could simply pick a spice from a plant like they did. And I have. Nutmeg and mace at the side of the road in the West Indies. Cloves and cinnamon in another rainforest also in the West Indies. Tamarind in a hotel garden. Coffee berries growing wild in a crack in a wall. I remember most a huge fat cocoa bean that weighed down my camera bag all the way back to our hotel and which later in the day I cut open with a combination of our room key and a flip-flop. Inside the sour and slightly smelling shell a white paste surrounded hard off-white kernels. I knew it wouldn't be cocoa in a form I recognised, but I still somehow expected at least a slight smell of chocolate. Picking a spice is somehow incredibly exciting because it imprints a strong memory involving smell as the predominant factor, sight and taste following after, so it can creep up on you when you least expect it. The best of it is that it's one that is regularly recalled, Each time I grate nutmeg, I'm still instantly taken back to Grenada in the West Indies, warm breezes, heavy with spice, curry beer, white sand, and an endless starry sky. Madha Jaffrey. I wanted Madha to be my granny. No, really, I did. Madha was cool and slick and she went a long way to filling the gap left by Keith. A neat, tidy, and irrepressibly cheerful woman. She had a wonderful days of the Raj accent, strong, melodic Indian, mixed with BBC English. Like Keith, she teased apart our country's food culture, took us through the food of the north and south of this vast country, the cuisine of the rich and poor, the historical and the new. I took great delight in beginning to pronounce words as she did. Guddy, for curry. Nan, rather than naan. And raita rather than Rater. Little knowing that it made a small English kid sound like a complete twit. She avoided dumbing down her dishes to suit an English palate, or substitute other ingredients where the correct one would be hard to find. I believe this wasn't just to remain authentic, whatever that is. I think she also knew that a vast Anglo-Indian community was also watching intently. I am ashamed to say that I have never ever cooked a single one of her recipes, despite having at least one of her books on my shelf. So the 80s gave away to the 90s, and then the noughties, and marked the start of some dubious years in my life. Cookery slowly morphed into entertainment. Can't cook, won't cook. Come Dine With Me, Kitchen Nightmares, Beat The Chef, etc. None of these are really me, although Come Dine With Me is pretty good, and it would be easy to dismiss them out of hand as simple entertainment and not real cooking. But that's the way a lot of people get started. Learning through enjoyment, after all, is a great way to become a true expert. It's true that basic skills such as knife work, sauces, and method are often overlooked, but now... Enjoyment and passion, food pairings and variety are being taught in their place. Leftovers, which were a rude word when I was growing up, are now the basis for whole programs. As is nutrition, which was once a word only used by vegans. So the zeitgeist has simply shifted a bit for now. Cookery is still going strong. St. Jamie is going great guns. His economy recipes are a great teaching aid for anyone, and I think some of his best work. And his single handed rescuing of the British salad industry from eternal disgrace is worth a knighthood alone. He's not Keith Floyd, nor is Ramsay, Adria, Blumenthal, Escoffier, Rue, Waring, Ducasse, or even the mostly overlooked Kerr. Keith didn't just make cookery cool and compulsive viewing, even for those normally uninterested in such things. Keith made cooking about more than just mixing ingredients together, adding heat and serving. Keith made you want to get inside the TV with him, to make food part of your life. Regardless of how it ended, be in no doubt, Keith Floyd's legacy lives on in the DNA of modern day cooking. And for that, we should be very grateful indeed. Got some in that bottle, yo. you've been listening to the portable foodie if you've enjoyed this do my ego a favor tell a couple of people and subscribe to the podcast hmm.